All right, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to uh, Romans chapter 2, and we'll continue there uh, from last week in our kind of travel through the book or through the letter here. Last week, we looked at the second half of Romans chapter 1. If you recall, it's uh, all in the past tense for the most part, and there's it's the beginning of Paul laying out the foundation for the gospel. And he's laying out uh, the crescendo that we'll get to is Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so uh, in these first three chapters, that's what he's covering. Last week it was a people and scholars argue over, is it uh, pre-Abraham, is it pre-Noah? But it's a group of pagans, it's a people, generic people, and we looked at last week and apply to us, that exhibit certain behaviors and thought processes. And so what happened in this time with this people is they began to see evidence of God, that it was through creation, it was through undeniable evidence that he's God, that he's the Lord, of his divine power. And it says that they exchanged, I say they, it's we, to be honest, we exchange the, the truth of God uh, for a lie. And we talked a lot about that because that's a very normal thing for human beings to do. When we reject God, when we say in, in any, any way, shape, or form, and we say his ways are wrong or he doesn't really understand or this is better or something like that, ultimately we have to come up with a new truth, right? So we say, no, creation's not real. Actually, what happened is rain fell on rocks Lightning struck amino acids, and that created our first bacterias and amoebas. And then those amoebas developed uh, some sort of neurological system and a pulmonary system and all these other systems that our bodies have. And the, the two amoebas found each other with those two systems of over billions of years, and then that created a frog. And then from there, you know, and so on and so forth. So that's, we've exchanged the truth of God from just saying God is powerful and he loves humans and he created the earth to this whole system that we've developed to say, no, this is actually how it works, which is obviously it's exchanging the truth for a lie. And so it's very normal, even in our own behavioral patterns in our own life, when we say with anger, if we're very angry at somebody and the Lord says, hey, you need to forgive that person, and we go, no, but I deserve this. And it feels good. It's why we as, as Christians and unbelievers, have you ever heard this sitting, uh, or said it? I've definitely said it. Uh, you, typically, you can like, come into a church foyer, and you can almost hear one of us say, I know I shouldn't have, but. <laughs> ever heard that statement? Followed by, flip someone off in traffic, or whatever it might be, right? We developed that, say, I know I shouldn't have. And, and it's funny, because when you're in that group of people, and someone says, I know I shouldn't have, and then they say what they did, we chuckle because we go, well, I've done that too. I understand what you're saying right now. I'm not saying we should, I'm saying it happens. Because when we exchange, when God says, no, it's good to love, it's good to forgive, but we say, no, it's good to flip someone off when going around the roundabout because they got to know how mad I was about their poor turning you know, uh, skills or whatever it might be. So over and over again throughout humanity on, on macro and micro level scales, Paul's just describing this is what humans do. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. In this case, it's interesting because three times it says that he gave them up. See, this is the amazing thing about how God works. He gave us free will. So we have, and, and again, I, I, I don't want to just repeat myself, but honestly, it's the most powerful gift that he gave us. 
because you can use your free will to build up and to bless and to do good, and I can do the same, or we can use our free will to rage and to take away and destroy, can't we? And we do it every day in, in on kind of micro levels with small decisions. And so he says, God says, look, because they chose to, tr- to take the truth of God and exchange it for a lie, and actually it goes a little bit farther than that. There's a pretty fascinating, remember verse 28, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Literally what, is, what he's saying there, it says that it, it, it's the idea, they weighed God and they found him wanting. And, and, and it's, it's not that God is somehow lacking or that he was inadequate for the task in their day and age or at that time. It's the idea that they weighed God against their lie, and they found that God was lacking, and so God gave them up. And so this idea, again, God says, look, if you're not going to go my way, I'll let you go. And that's what it means. He literally abandoned them to go the direction that they were going to go. And that abandoning, it led to certain sins. And the three times that it says that he abandoned them or that he gave them up to that is three different kind of categories, if you will. It's heterosexual, sexual sin, homosexual, sexual sin. And the last one is just kind of this generic evilness, this generic wickedness. And if you look there in the verses passing, verse 28, uh, they were filled with uh, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Envy, murder, strife, deceit. So they were very much like our culture, very much like us. Haters of God, slanderers, heartless, ruthless. I mean, is this, this, when you watch the news or you read things, isn't this our world? And I'm not talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about Pack County. You ever read the blotter? The police blotter in Pack County? What do you see? Ruthlessness, heartless. What do we see in our own hearts? Ruthlessness, vengeance, disgust, right? Paul is laying out a thing here, and he's saying, look, and he, and he really, the culmination is where we're going to start today there in verse 2, or chapter 2, excuse me, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. It's very interesting, because in chapter 1 is they, 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 and then chapter 2, us, you, us. Now, there's something that's very important, and forgive me for, for possibly being repetitive, but when we're looking at chapter 2 today, because it's all about judgment, and, and I'm no, we don't want to shy away from the fact that there is judgment, and there's judgment coming, and we're not, we're not trying to be light on that. We don't, I don't think we need to like rejoice in it in the sense of like, yeah, stick it to the man or something like that, but the fact that we're not trying to, we're not trying to get away from it. But I want to be really clear. I don't know what your church background was like. My church background, I got saved when I was 16, and I got saved into a very uh, legalistic church. And if you're not familiar with that, what it means is it's the idea that essentially, yes, you get saved by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, we're all like, yes, amen. But then from that point on, it's kind of a works-based maintenance of salvation. And this is not a new idea. I mean, this goes back all the way back to the Judaizers that used to follow Paul around, and they would say, hey, um, we're glad that Jesus, you're saved by Christ. That's, that's really great. It's really great that you have Jesus. And, and we'll acknowledge him as the Messiah. But here's the thing. You need to be circumcised too. And you need to keep the Sabbath. And you need to keep the feasts. And you need to do these things. And they say, if you don't do those things, you're not actually saved. So that idea has gone from the, literally like day two of the gospel. And it's to today. We, we probably don't wrestle too much. There's some, but we probably don't wrestle too much with incorporating Judaism into Christianity. 
But we wrestle with things. There's many, many uh, popular teachings. If you don't read the King James Bible, you're saved by grace through faith. But if you don't read the King James Bible, after all, in 1 Corinthians, it says that when the perfect has come, then the old is done away with, and the perfect is the King James Bible. I don't know if you've read that pamphlet or not. It used to be very popular, right? I'm serious. So then you have, or, or, or hey, you, you're saved by grace through faith, but if you don't speak in tongues, you're not actually saved, Right? That's a very popular denomination that has that, that stance. You've been saved by grace through faith, but if you don't get baptized, or you don't get baptized at this church, then you're not a true believer, and you're not actually really saved. If you get saved by, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith, but if you go see rated R movies, well, then you've, ooh, man, we don't know. We don't know. I'm not advertising and saying we should view smut. That's not my point. My point is that it is in every one of us to take standards that we make up or that we think we get out of the scripture and say that's actually how a person either gets saved or maintains their salvation. And it's funny because in Peter, when he's talking to the, uh, the elders there in Jerusalem, he says, why do you want to heap this burden on them, being the Gentiles, which we ourselves couldn't even fulfill? So why talk about that right now? Because contextually, when we went through chapter three, or excuse me, chapter one, it took three weeks to do it. It's speaking of unbelievers, okay? Can we agree on that? It's speaking of unbelievers. Why is that important? Because chapter 2, verse 1 starts with therefore. So when you read therefore, what do you say? What's the therefore, therefore, right? Because therefore means because of what I just said. So if I give a whole treatise and then I say, therefore, you're expecting me then to build on or to give an application for what I just said, right? Why go through all of this? Because I can't tell you how many Bible teachings I heard where somebody read the beginning of Romans chapter 2 and applied it to Christians. And they said, if you're not doing good works, if you're not doing these things, then you will be judged by God and you will be cast out. And this is still a very popular idea. There are a lot of, if we went through and named names, which we're not going to do, it's not our job. There's a lot of people that are on this list that teach that idea that we probably have their commentaries and their Bibles and these different things. This is a, still a very popular idea that you get saved by grace through faith, but essentially condemnation is waiting. And if you mess up, it's like Adam. It's there at the door knocking and it would have mastery over you but it is a false teaching. And so we cannot bring in other ideas and apply them to Christians when this is talking about unbelievers. Now, is there application for believers in this? Absolutely. But it's not maybe what people have taught us in the past. I'm not trying to get away from sin. We'll talk about what happens with sin with Christians. We're not trying to say that God doesn't care or it's cheap grace. or We're not advocating for any of that. We're just wanting to see how does judgment work? Because maybe it's unfamiliar, kind of cloudy in your mind. I think for a lot of us, for me, for probably the first 10 years of my Christian life, I really just thought like, okay, I know I got saved, but I think I have to be really good now. And then if I'm not, like there's condemnation and there's judgment because all these, these out of context ideas gets, get mixed around. When in reality, there's a penalty for sin to the believer in this life and the next. It's not the same penalty as an unbeliever. It's absolutely not. And there, is, uh, there are penalties and there is separation for the unbeliever. 
So we just want to look at this. What is Paul saying? How can we understand what's happening in the world? And how can we understand what's happening in our own hearts? So we'll read here. We'll start in chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Who's the you? Everyone. It's everyone. He says, you have no excuse, O man. Now, O man, uh, I'm not going to stop every two seconds when I read this, but I want to point this out. Uh, O man, it's, it's also been rightly translated, whoever you are. So when he says, oh man, it's not like all the women go, whew, I'm good. No, it's whoever you are. That's what he's saying. So he says there, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you, uh, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is to be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now see, here's the thing. Now you understand maybe why we have this giant introduction. And you might be asking yourself, is he really just trying to twist what's being said here and trying to come up with some weird application so we can just kind of do what we want to do? Absolutely not. But remember, when he's talking to these people, when he's referencing this, he's saying every single human, this applies to them. The end of a statement is what? God shows no partiality. In the end of chapter 2, which we won't cover today, and in chapter 3, he's going to talk about specifically the Jew versus the Gentile. Why was this important? Because there were Jews and Gentiles really in, in every church and in everywhere there are. Jews had already come back to Rome after they had been kicked out by Caesar, and now they're making their way back. So there's Jews among them. Remember, Jews, for the most part, because they had been, uh, well, I guess there's a lot of reasons that we can't necessarily go into all now, but basically for the last 800 years, pre-Jesus had been essentially conquered and destroyed by everybody who walked by. They hated Gentiles. They looked at Gentiles literally as fuel for the fires of hell. It's, no, it's, it's not a coincidence that every single time Jesus and Paul ever mentioned that Gentiles can be saved, what happens? They try to kill them. If you go back into the Gospels, every single time Jesus says that this person, whether it's uh, the centurion, whether it's um, the fact that he notes that only Naaman, a Gentile, was the only person in the Old Testament recorded that was healed from leprosy, every single time he brings up that God is merciful or kind or Gentiles can be saved, the Pharisees' response to both Paul and Jesus are, we have to kill this guy. There's no way, there's just no way that God would save Gentiles. So part of this introduction that Paul is making is, number one, to put us all on the same playing field. We are without excuse, period. But the other part of it is to communicate to the Jew and to the Gentile that both opposing parties are without excuse. 
The Jews are without an excuse before the Lord. We are without an excuse for our sin before the Lord. The Gentiles and and the, the past, present, and future are without excuse before the Lord. So when he's communicating these things and he's talking about how wrath and judgment are incurred, he's speaking to unbelievers. How do we know this? Well, later on in Romans chapter 8, Paul's going to make an interesting statement. He's going to say that people that are believers, number one, in Romans chapter 8, 1, he says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So see, judgment is just considering something, right? In other words, if, I, if somebody is doing something that is destructive, the Bible very much endorses observing it and saying to yourself, that is destructive. See, when he says, judge not lest you be judged, and there's different ideas, I judge nothing until the time. Paul says that later on in this epistle, actually, a couple of different places. He says, I don't judge anything until the time. That judgment is the idea of judgment with condemnation. In other words, it's, it's perfectly acceptable. Jesus even told us in the same paragraph almost, judge with righteous judgment. It's perfectly acceptable to do that. Hey, I see what's going on. This is not right. But if I then say, you have no chance, or I then say, you cannot be saved, or you, there's no way you're saved, or I can't believe you would do that, or I now install some sort of penalty for it, other than like our judicial system, that is the judgment that he says, don't do that. Don't condemn people. So when he says there in Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not, he's not saying that God doesn't see the wrong that we do. He's saying he does not condemn us for us. This is, this is a very key point in the gospel. It's a very key point for our faith, and it's the foundation of everything Paul is going to lay out here in Romans. The fact that Jesus bled at Calvary, that he was proclaimed by John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not who takes it aside and then heaps it on you if you're naughty. Not who, you know, all these weird conceptions that we have. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that the old things have passed away and, or ten, and the new things have come. It's not the old things are lurking in your closet and they come out when you've been bad again. All right, This is very important. That he does not condemn the Christian for sin because Jesus took the condemnation upon himself. That's why when you have there from the, the sixth to the ninth hour that it goes completely black. The picture there is that Christ is being judged. It says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. It tells us in the Bible that he bore our sins in his own body. This is why it's scandalous grace. He actually took the wrath and the payment for sin that we owe. This is huge for us. So when we're now getting to the conclusion in Romans 8, kind of getting ahead, obviously, we're in Romans 2. But when we see that the conclusion to the gospel is that God does not condemn the person who believes. What do we believe? What do we believe to get saved? It is the, it's the, the simple good news, right? The simple good news, the ascension of faith that we have to make is simply this. I am hopelessly sinful. It's not just what I do, it's who I am. I have inherited it from generation after generation from Adam, as all of us have. And that when Christ came into the world, he fulfilled all of the prophecies and promises of the old covenant. And that he is the Messiah and he paid what I owe the Father for my sin. 
And then he rose again from the dead, declaring his righteousness and showing his power. If you believe that, you're saved. And God does not condemn you. He has no condemnation for you. He's not reserving you for any punishment. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, this is really important. If you want to skip over to 1 Thessalonians 5, there's a lot of T ones right in the row. It's the first one. I learned that last service. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, And just for context's sake, so we can know exactly who Paul is writing to there in Thessalonica. He says there in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. So who is he writing to? Believers. And it's the Greek word, like always, that he uses, or almost always, brothers and sisters. It's, just, it's a unisex word that he's using for both genders. Brothers and sisters. Now we know who he's writing to. Check it out in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, uh, excuse me, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. See, you have a destiny. It's pretty interesting, right? It always makes me think of Star Wars, but you know, Vader, it is your de- anyway. You have a destiny. A destiny is just that, something you are destined. It will happen, okay? You, your destiny, number one, first and foremost, you are destined to never fall under God's wrath. Is that not what it says? Brothers, he has not destined you to wrath. If we go back to Romans... Chapter 2, what did we read? We read that these individuals are actually storing up wrath for themselves, right? That he says there, because, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Is this believers? No, it can't be. Because we are not destined for wrath. In fact, we have another destiny. If we were to go back to Romans chapter 8, there around verse 38, 39, we actually find out that our destiny as a believer is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Right? So not only are you not destined for wrath, you are are destined to be conformed to be like Jesus. Not in his divinity, like we'll become divine. Nobody's saying that. But in essence, we will take on those traits of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We will embody them. We will one day put off our sinful flesh, the, 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 the body that we're in now. We will one day put away our, what we inherited from Adam, our old nature. That will be separated from our souls eternally. And instead, we will still be sealed with the Holy Spirit and receive a new body that will allow us to appropriately interact in heaven, a body that is not corrupted by sin. So you have a destiny. It is not to be in, in, incur wrath from God. You cannot incur wrath from God. Now, don't get scared. We're not saying that there's stuff that occurs with sin. But it's not wrath, and it's not hell. It's not condemnation. Ultimate condemnation from God is hell. It's to be separated from him forever. 
This is really important. Why? Because that's why we have peace. Could you have peace if you really embraced the idea that your thought life and its purity is what got you into heaven? Is there any of us here that would raise our hand and say, I am pure enough in my mind to be, I'm perfect in fact, in my mind, and I'm eligible for heaven. It's easy to say, but it's, it's probably not true. See, we, ha- we have that destiny. So what, that begs the question, and it's, a, it's an honest question for some of us, and it's a legalistic question for some of us, but it does beg a very legitimate question. What happens and what does sin do in the Christian life? So when a Christian sins, what does that mean for the Christian? Can you leave your salvation? Can you become unsaved? I would say no, absolutely not. Because what you're saying, if you take that position, you are saying that Jesus' blood actually was not enough. That actually you need works and you need to maintain some level and thus God lets you into heaven. You know the funny thing is? No one can ever answer what that level is. Do you have to be rude one time, two times, or like Peter, Lord, I might forgive my brother like seven times. And he says, seven times 70, my man. And we're like, 490, okay, it's going to take a little bit bigger book to remember how many times I have to forgive him. No, the idea is you never stop. So how does it work out in a Christian's life? This is how sin works in a a Christian's life. It reaps death. If I'm perpetually rude to my wife, right? If I'm just always rude to her, if I come home from work and I'm just like, I don't know, I don't know what I would say. Make me a turkey pot pie. I don't know. I, you know, whatever, whatever I would say, right? You know, I come home from work and I'm just like, ah, blah, blah, I had a bad day, blah, blah, blah. And so my daughters see that, right? They see me be rude to my wife. My wife's actually a very kind and a very forgiving person. That's why we're still married. But so she's, 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 she's a great lady. Right, and so she, she, she. We've we've had our arguments and all that, and we've forgiven each other the whole thing. So I might come in and I might rage on her, and she might forgive me. She might go, "Wow, I forgive you for that." But what's it going to do to her, and what's it going to do to my children? It will reap death. It will separate her from me because even though she may forgive me, there's going to be a a very there's going to be a gap, isn't there? She may still walk with me and say I love you, and she might uh, you know go with me places and all sorts of things. But in the end, there's going to be like a gun shyness. There's going to be a fear. There won't be a connection in our, in our, in our souls, that kind of that soulmate type of idea. There will always be a reservation for her towards me, right? So that all that can be there. But I will have created a division, literally separated us, haven't I? Our relationship dies slowly with that. And then my daughters, they see. They say, this, this is how a man treats a woman. This is what's appropriate because they, they, they see, oh, you know, my mom sticks with him and they may not understand right away that she sticks with me because she loves Jesus. And then she one day has to have a talk with them, doesn't she? Where she says, yeah, your dad's, he's, he's not very nice, but I stick with him because the, the Bible tells me that it's healthy to stick with him and he, he's not over the top and he doesn't, whatever, whatever, you know, rationale she has. And then my, then, and now I have a, a, a distance to my, my children and I. That t- they can't take me seriously. Oh, yeah, you stand up in front of the podium and tell everybody, you should love Jesus, but then you get home and you're a giant jerk. Right? And, and, and maybe it gets worse. Maybe they marry giant jerks. 
They, they date jerks because they go, well, I guess this is just how it is. And they date those guys. And then they go into those relationships. And then their daughters date those guys. And they, See, sin will always destroy. Or maybe I just have pride. Maybe I just think I'm great. And I treat everybody around me like, yeah, you're welcome to be with me. Right? The ministry will suffer. My family will suffer. All the, the testimony of Christ will suffer. I'll never know true relationship with another human because I'll be, it, not, you can be in the same room with me. And it just goes on and on. Maybe I'm, I'm just living a lascivious life. And I go, yeah, I'm saved, but you know what? I get drunk, I sleep around, I'm having a good time. First question is, why am I sleeping around if I'm a Christian? Why am I getting drunk if I'm a Christian? It's the same reason that everybody sins. I'm looking for fulfillment. I'm not making myself to be a victim, but I'm looking to be fulfilled. I've literally changed the truth of God. I am all you need. And I've said, no, you're a liar. I need sex too. You're a liar. I need this relationship. You're a liar. I need booze. Because my life is so terrible, if I don't self-medicate, you can't fix it. You can't be part of that. So if I'm a Christian and I'm doing those things, am I losing my salvation? Am I becoming destined for wrath? No, I'm not. I'm destroying my life and I'm destroying the people around me and I'm destroying opportunities for the kingdom. That's what I'm doing. So then what happens when I die? Because that's kind of the big question, right? That's what we're kind of talking about here. If I'm a Christian and I'm living for myself, what happens when I die? Well, if I'm drinking and sexing it up everywhere, if that's kind of my motif and that's what I'm into, can lust and how else would we put it? A need to self-medicate, a desire to be drunk, can that go to heaven? Can a holy God who is said to consume, consume those around him, his holiness consumes sin, a holy God who I think it's a little bit... Um, Allegorical, but it says he, he doesn't even, he can't even see sin in a kind of an allegorical He's so holy. Could I, could I stand or kneel at his presence in heaven with that? No, right? No, there's no place for that in heaven. You know, Paul makes a very interesting case. He says here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, and, and to me, I think this is a very important verse in all the things that we're talking about here, is how his judgment relates to the Christian. I'm not trying to go too far out into the weeds and not, not preach the passage, but I really want to get this down so that we don't get some weird application from the, pack, from the passage. In chapter 3 and verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. But it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, the Christian who sins, the Christian who holds on to besetting sin, the Christian who adopts it into their identity, what happens to them? They lose their soul. They lose themselves. This is what I mean. If my whole life is built on greed, let's say I'm, let's say I'm a billionaire. I'm not, but let's say I was. 
And, you know, it's funny. I actually watched a, uh, a very interesting YouTube once. There's a channel that they basically just take people of opposite uh, ideas on any spectrum and just basically put them in a room. And the only law is you have to be civil. That's the, you just have to be able to discuss. You can't get angry and emotional. It's actually very fascinating. And I watched one one time, and it was five people who came from nothing and were millionaires, and five people who had nothing, who were, who were below the nation's poverty line. Okay? And the interesting thing is that every one of those five people that had made themselves millionaires, I'm not saying this is the only way you can do it, they all said the exact same thing. They said, all through my 20s and 30s, I dated no one, I went nowhere, I never went out to eat, I did nothing but eat, drink, and sleep my business. And one guy was like, I started 25 different businesses, and he was worth like 10 million at, at the time that they, that they recorded this conversation. And everybody on the other side, and I'm not justifying, I'm, not, I'm just saying how it went down, everybody on the other side just basically said, no, I want to hang out with my friends. I'm not interested in that. And they said, that's cool, you won't be a millionaire. Unless you inherit it, because this is how we did it. So if my whole life is consumed with money, and I think to myself, if I have money, I'm going to be happy, and I give everything I have to make money. When I stand before the Lord as a Christian, my money doesn't go with me. As it's been well said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearse. It doesn't happen. And I stand before the Lord with all of my money being burnt behind me, being worth nothing. Everything in my soul, everything I adopted as my identity to make that money, where does it go? Up in smoke. It's burnt away. But he himself is saved as by fire. So everything I amass in my identity, if it's hatred for the opposing political people and their views, if it's jealousy, if it's anger, if it's covetousness, if it's malice, everything I adopt and I allow to become who I am, when I stand before Christ, by God's grace, it will be removed from me. It sounds like a very miserable process. I don't know what it means to be purified by fire, but it sounds disappointing at best. So I don't think we look at this and go, oh, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we just burn a little. I think that there'll be great loss. I'm going to share with you a James Aiken theory that you can throw right in the trash, because it's just, it's just theory crafting about the Bible. I find it interesting, I find it fascinating, that it says that in heaven, Jesus wipes away every tear as people come into heaven. But there's no sorrow or distress or death or competition, interestingly enough, or any of that stuff is in heaven. So it's just a theory. But I think for many of us, myself on there, there's a big possibility that we come into heaven with tears in our eyes because we say, I knew you didn't want that, but I did it anyway. I knew you said it was bad. I knew you said it was reaped death. I knew it would destroy my children. I knew it would destroy my wife. I knew it would limit my possibilities for the kingdom. But it felt so dang good that I held on to it. It was so great to be a victim and to respond from any place and every place of my victimization. And everybody had to serve me. It felt so good. I'm sorry it made me inadequate for the kingdom and I really never did anything for you. I'm sorry that all I cared about was money. I'm sorry that I just looked at my brethren and always found faults with them. It felt so good to find faults with every Christian ever because I felt so good about myself and I built my identity on the fact that I'm not like anybody else. Oh, but I am, right? See, these are not those people. It's us. 
It's the little things. It's the things, what things do we hold on to? What, what decisions are we making right now? They're actually building our identity, an identity to be lost in disgrace and in disappointment and in, in shame. See, sin will always destroy. The Bible tells us, and I love the honesty of the Bible. It says it's pleasurable. Hebrews tells us sin is pleasurable for a season. We have to acknowledge that. Sin feels good. I mean, really just fill in the blank, whatever sin it is. I mean, even if you're hitting the heroin, right? You feel amazing for like 25 minutes. Even if you're, if you're, if you're greedy and you're getting money, it feels amazing to get that money, doesn't it? The power, the security, it's gone like that. It feels good. But it destroys our souls. So the Christian that walks in sin, we can, you, you can question someone's salvation all you want. I mean, personally, I don't think I'm going to go there because what do I know? I mean, at the end of the day, maybe we just caught somebody having a bad year. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. And I don't want to know. God forbid that I ever think to myself, that person can't be saved, or they never were saved. Or, that's, that's not my deal. Because God will figure that out. Nobody's going to hoodwink God. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to stick up for him. We don't have to be like, you, yo, God, this person. No, they're not. They're not. No one's going to like sneak by like next to someone else. Like, no, it's not happening. It's not like getting into a theater or something. We don't have to defend God. He's got it covered. But for us, this is why we worship. This is why we sing. This is why we lift our arms and our hands to Christ. Because everything that we deserve, everything we just read about in Romans chapter 2, will not happen to us. Not because we did anything. None of us deserve it. None of us should pat ourselves on the back. But because God is so good and the sacrifice that Jesus paid was so huge. There's a reason why Paul says it's scandalous grace. He calls it the scandal of the cross. He says, if I yet preach the scandalous grace of the cross, why am I persecuted? Because it's scandalous. We look at it, we just go, oh, that, oh nobody deserves that but me. <laughs> We're crazy. But we have such peace and such grace. So we want to make decisions as believers. What do we come away with out of Romans chapter 2? We want to make decisions as believers that honor God because sin will still destroy our lives, but we shall be saved as by fire. But he's making the point here to the unbeliever that this is what the unbeliever is doing. If you flip back there, and there's so much more to be said on this, but he says here, he's, just, he's, he's making a, a uh, showing the case that this is, that because people have taken a lie and exchanged it for the truth, or I should say, taken the truth and exchanged it for a lie, he says, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges. And the first evidence he has is in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice those very same things. I don't think we have to expound on that. Every human being on the planet does that. We just justify it when we do it. You know, you can see someone litter and go, oh, and then at the same time, like, your dog poos somewhere, and you're like, all right? We do it. We condemn somebody who chucks a cup out the window, and then we let our dog poo somewhere. It's the same thing. It's with all those things. We measure and we judge. I can't believe you said that. And the next moment, there we are, passing it along. 
And he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge, those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself? And it's interesting because the wording there is, do you suppose or do you think... I don't even have to be up here. <laughs> do I still get paid with that? The, uh, I am totally kidding. Um, but the... <laughs> probably not anymore. So the, uh, but the point that he's making here is that you who do those things occasionally, do you judge the person who does them all the time? Like, do you think there's a difference? Does frequency matter? No. But if you do those things, you heap condemnation upon yourself. And it's just that easy. Remember, is he talking to believers? No. He's talking about the unbeliever. Are we saying that sin doesn't matter in a believer's life? No. It absolutely matters. It hinders a ton. But this, we, we can look at this and we can say, wow, that's pretty scary. That's something to think about. When we, we see people and we understand people at the, at the store or at the movie theater or wherever we're going, to this is what they're under. This is what they're doing and this is what's coming to them. Verse 4 says, do you presume, it means to look down on, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And this is something for the unbeliever and for us. The, the, the context is unbeliever. And he's saying, look, do you look down on God's kindness and his forbearance? Do you mistake the fact that we live in a pretty wild time right now? If you think about it, from Christ's resurrection till now, the dispensation, if you want to use that word, that we live in is a dispensation of grace. Can you imagine what your life would be like if God just came down every time you sinned? Every thought that you had? I don't, what would we make it, like 30 seconds after getting up? Like our first thought, oh, work again. <laughs> Do not complain, right? Be thankful for everything you have. Like how we treat our kids, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine? But he says, don't mistake his forbearance and his patience is that he's weak or that he thinks it's okay. Have you ever felt that? I've felt that way. Like, you kind of got some little secret thing going on, but nothing bad happens. So you're like, does God really care? Is it really a big deal? It's because we fundamentally, we just don't understand sin. We don't, have, we don't understand how destructive it is. And we think because nothing bad has happened to us yet, they're like, yeah, God understands. Have you heard that or you said that? Yeah, God understands. Yeah, he understands that you're despising him and doing what you want to do and destroying your life. That's what he understands. And then he loves you very much and he doesn't want you to do that. Why he suggested going another route. He does understand better than we understand. We're told that our hearts are desperately wicked and we can't even know them. And so God comes along and says, man, I love you. This is what I'm setting forward for you. Don't walk in that. And don't mistake his forbearance as being weakness or his him not seen or that there will be no effect. It's not the case. He is waiting kindly for us to come back to him. And in this case, for the unbeliever to come to him. And I want to pass that on for us. You know, can we be kind and forbearing and patient with people that don't know Jesus? It seems like if that's God's heart towards them, maybe we could do that too. Right? It seems like we could look at people. You know, one of the things, I, I, I'm definitely not the wise old pastor by any stretch, but one of the things I've learned in doing this uh, full time for 16 years, every single person I've ever met that, that is just as sinful and wacky like me has a story. Every single person. You know, you don't think about that, right? Because we come in, our hair is done, and, you know, we probably have some semblance of clothes on, and we, we come to church, and we kind of get our coffee, we kind of mingle a little bit, 
And you never know that like the person you're sitting next to you has been raped. The person, the person you're sitting next to you was starved as a child. The person you're sitting next to you has, you know, there's radical traumas in their life. And, and, and they've made terrible decisions in their life. And it's compounded the bad decisions that have happened to them. But you know what? The truth of the matter is I, I'm not revealing anybody's secrets. Every single person in here has had some sort of issue. I'm not saying we're victims. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying that when we look at one another and we do weird stuff, because we all do, to look at one another and go, oh, you're doing weird stuff. Okay. I'll bet there's a reason for that. Not just like, oh, you're doing weird stuff because you're stupid and sinful. So I just miss you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Right? That's, That's how we act a lot of times. But if God is saying, hey, I'm kind to these people, who's he kind to? People who have rejected his truth and exchanged it for a lie and gone off into radical sin. That's our context. If he says, hey, I'm kind to them, I have forbearance for them, I think maybe we should too. To be kind to people, to ask people about their story, to listen to them, to give them the gospel, to ask them to repent of their sins and come to know Christ. But it's all in that understanding and and being open and kindness and forbearance. And he says that they're storing up wrath for themselves. Verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. It's, It's important. It's impenitent. It means it won't turn. It will not, they will not turn their hearts. That's what he's saying. And they will not repent to, to turn and agree with him. It, it, the word repent, it, it, almost every single time it's in the, the New Testament, it's, uh, I can't pronounce the Greek, but it's basically, it means to say the same thing. The, the little translation is to say the same thing, to agree with God and then turn to him. Confession and repentance. That's what he says they won't do that. Then he says this in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. Uh, and we're running out of time here, so I'm not going to kind of summarize this. He's rendering each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. So let me ask something. Does this change Ephesians 2? Because right here it says, wow, he's giving it according to their works. So if they're good, then they get eternal life. And if they're naughty, then they get the hot place. I mean, that's what it's saying, right? But does this, when we read things like this, does it discount everything else we read in the Bible? That we've been saved by grace through faith. Do we just take that and throw it to the curb and go, well, actually, apparently we're saved by good works? Because look what he's saying here. I don't think so. I don't think we want to throw this thing out. We say, how do they merge? How do they work? What's really, what is he really saying here? And, and there's, I think there's a few clues. Number one, he says, he says, by patient well-doing, they seek glory and honor and immortality. So number one, these first people are seeking they're seeking. Where does seeking come from? It comes from a hunger. It comes from the heart. It comes from a desire to find something, right? So it's a heart issue, once again. The second people that he mentions there, he says they are self-seeking in verse 8. So one set of people, there's a heart. There's a change in a different heart. And they're seeking immortality. They're seeking the Lord. These are people that are believers. They put their trust in Christ. And there's another set of people that are seeking for themselves. Now, can a Christian seek for themselves? Sure, we do it all the time. We've already talked about that. But this, these are people that this is their life. This is what they are about. This is who they are. And in this case, it says that there's people that are seeking and there's people that are seeking these other things. And the people, the unbelievers that are seeking for themselves, rejecting the truth, will not turn. It says that they're, they're storing up wrath. And it says that they, uh, w- there will be wrath and fury. And there will be tribulation and stress for every human being that does uh, evil. It's interesting um, 
that word uh, tribulation or anguish, it's, it's a, a oppression. There'll be oppression to every person that does that. There'll be an oppression. God's will will be forced upon them. They will be forced to leave his presence. And it's a terrible and a scary thing. And the, the second idea there that it says uh, distress, it's actually um, narrowness. Same like when Jesus says narrow is the way. The idea that, you know, the Christian, David says things like, uh, obviously he was Jewish, not Christian, but a man after God's own heart. And he says, you've, put, you've set my feet in a large place, right? Kind of metaphorically, this idea that this openness, this, and when you think of freedom, I don't think there's very many of us that we, we think of life and freedom, you know, that we think of like a small incarceration. It's always broad and open, right? So this is the opposite of that. He says, people that seek wickedness and seek it out, that they end up in this narrow and a constrained way. Ultimately, as, as we've talked about before, it's a, it's a picture from the Old Testament, uh, from the, the word for um, iniquity, ava or avon, and it's the idea that, that God visits their iniquity or people's iniquity, their crookedness falls in on them. And so this is just the completion of that. It's, it's, kind of an, it's, a, it's the most used uh, picture in the Old Testament. And then lastly, he says, but for glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the, also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And then we have our kind of conclusion there for this portion, that there's no partiality in someone who rejects the gospel. There's, there's, no, I was, there's, no, there's not going to be a sincerity. That all this whole idea, or I, I didn't know, or I was sincere in what I was doing, there are no sincere human beings. We need to understand that. Everybody has weird motivations at different times. You know, it's funny, a lot of times you'll hear people, and I've done it too, I love helping people because it feels so good. Well, why do you help people? Because it feels good to you or because they need help? Would you help people if it didn't feel good? We can even be motivated by that. We're so twisted sometimes. So I, I wanted to shamelessly plug, we'll close with this. We, we have that like book thing out there. And they're just different books. If, if you have a good book that you'd like to recommend, and there's good books for reading. So this is one of the books that's out there. It's uh, The Weight of Glory. And if you're not familiar with it, it's written by C.S. Lewis, the Narnia dude. And uh, he, he's basically kind of like a Christian philosopher. Um, and he had a lot of, it's, it's cool, though. I like it. He had a lot of weird beliefs. You know, uh, he believed in post-death conversion, um, whatever. But he believed in Jesus as Savior. He got saved late in life, and it just had some... Pretty neat thoughts on stuff. So the weight of glory is basically about, uh, in a nutshell, it's the idea that we exchange earthly worthlessness. Uh, we hold on to earthly worthlessness in the face of eternal treasure. Uh, he opens it by talking about how we're like little children that play with mud pies, and our parents come to us and say, hey, we're going to take a holiday at sea. He's English, so it's a holiday. And, uh, and we go, why would I leave my mud pies? It's crazy talk. Well, I don't go be on a yacht and sail around and eat yummy food because it's so far out of our experience, we just kind of reject it. So he's kind of likening that to how we treat heaven since it's, he calls it a, a sense of a flower we've never uh, seen or news from a country we've never visited. There's this nuance in our life that we know that it's real, uh, but we don't necessarily, we're fearful to walk in it. And so he has this conclusion. I love this conclusion. I've probably read this particular thing like 50 times. It's not a boast. It's just, if, if you're like, wow, what, what really changed your Christian life in, in, your, in your 20s? It was this essay. This essay. It means a lot to me. Um, he's going to use the, word, uh, the words gods and goddesses. Nobody panic. He's, he's, not, he's using it allegorically. He's not saying that we become divine. 
But he says, meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is of the speculations which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror or a corruption as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping others to one, excuse me, helping other to one, hmm, it's just a wonderful, helping each other to one or other of these dimensions. It is the light, in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the saints, excuse me, for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him, Christ doth ver latidat lives. The glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. I love that. And, and um, I guess it has personal worth to me. But just this idea that, you know, tomorrow you're going to go to work and you're going to go to school and you're just going to be hanging out with immortals. And each one of us, with every word that comes out of our mouth, with every prayer that we utter, with our very heart, we're going to help them to one way or the other. We're going to help them to destruction or we're going to help them to life. And so it's, it's a pretty... It's not just sobering. I like that. He says we don't have to be perpetually solemn, but we can rejoice because we have God's Holy Spirit. We have his leading. We have one another. We have his word. We have everything we need for life and godliness and everything we need to make a difference in our world tomorrow. And I encourage you guys to go out and, and ask the Lord, what do, you, what do you want from me today? And if there's, if there's things that have become part of your identity, fear or anger, victimization, wrath, all these different things, and you're holding on to them, man, we'd love to pray with you. Because you don't have to walk out of here the same person. You can walk out of here a different person. And if you don't know Jesus, again, we encourage you, cry out to him. Invite him into your heart. Ask him what it means to be forgiven if you're kind of shaky on it. Ask him for forgiveness if you're not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great grace and kindness to us. Thank you for your word and just the, the revelation of who you are and what it is you're wanting to do in our world. Lord, thank you for the fact that we're forgiven people. And we're not destined for wrath. 
Thank you for your patience and your forbearance for the unbeliever and for us. Lord, I pray that you work that into our hearts and that your Holy Spirit, we would be slow to speak, quick to, quick to listen, that we would be those that have kindness on our tongues, Lord, those that think, believe, and want the best for one another. Lord, we pray for a supernatural uh, engagements this week and appointments to meet people and uh, just invite people to know you. So thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.